Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunn Street. Dunn Street partners with businesses, organisations, unions and social democratic parties from Australia and across the globe to train leaders, develop engagement strategies and empower people to organise for change. In 2020, uh, even though it's been an odd year, Dunn Street will continue to work with folks that want to make a difference, inspire, give hope and enable leadership to achieve their shared purpose. To find out how you can partner up with Dunstreet and work on one of your campaigns, hit us up at dunstreet.com.au. Hello and welcome to episode 50 of Socially Democratic, your weekly centre-left political and cultural podcast that dives into the progressive issues of the day and the people leading them from home and abroad. And on today's episode, we are speaking to Richard Miles, who is the deputy leader of the Federal Parliamentary Labor Party, the member for Corio and the shadow spokesperson for Defence. And Richard's going to come on today to talk, obviously, about COVID uh, and the impact that it's having on, uh, in particular, um, folks down here in Victoria, but also speak about um, the, the role of opposition during a global crisis such as uh, COVID-19 and a little bit about the work that he's doing in the space of defence and security. He spoke at the National Press Club uh, earlier this week, and we'll get to hear his thoughts and remarks on that uh, speech that he delivered. And don't forget, you can subscribe to Socially Democratic via all of your favourite podcast apps, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. And remember, if you're an Apple Podcast user, please leave us a rating and give us a review. We really appreciate that. And for all of the updates, follow Dunn Street on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Okay, let's get to today's episode. Okay, we're taping this one on a Friday morning in a very locked down Melbourne. And on the line from the Sleepy Hollow is the Deputy Leader of the Federal Parliamentary Labor Party and a member for Cryo. Richard Miles, welcome to Socially Democratic. Uh, good morning, Sam. How are you? We're very happy to be on the other side of Little River at the moment. I was doing my uh, research last night. For some reason, I thought Geelong was a part of the lockdown because I was about to ask you questions about, you know, how you're coping. You know, I know you love your golf. Have you set up a net in the backyard to try and hit the iron, you know, swing the irons? But then I realised, no, you can, you've got freedom. You can do whatever you like. Uh, I don't think we can do whatever we like. Um, and and to that end, I played golf last weekend uh, wearing a, a face mask, which is the requirement, as it has been in Melbourne, actually, up until really last week. So that's a new experience. Um, but, uh, oh, you know, I'm coping. It's it, But it's it's uh, – and it's certainly not as hard here in Geelong as it is in Melbourne. But um, it's, uh, it, it's a very difficult moment for the state uh, and, and obviously a very frustrating one. And I think – it, you know, I think most people would reflect that it's not so much about the um, hardships of any given hour or, or moment, although though for some people it fits that bill, but it is, it's really the unknown. You know, how long are we in this situation for? What's the future of my job? Um, I, I think, you know, for those who have loved ones in aged care, and obviously for those who are in aged care, it's a totally different kettle of fish. That is completely terrifying. Um, and... Certainly, I I think a lot about that. Um, but you know, it's 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 just a very difficult moment for the state. And to be honest, it's as difficult a moment as I can remember. Yeah, it kind of feels like Melbourne has been kept back for lunchtime detention for misbehaving, whilst the rest of the country's <laughs> out there playing in, in the schoolyard. And uh, there's sort of this introspection at the moment that we're sort of going through about you know why are we in this position? 
your thoughts on that? Yeah, why are we in the position? Uh, look, I, I think it's a good way of putting it. Uh, I think that is how people in in Victoria and Melbourne feel. And I had the experience of being outside the state earlier in the week as I had a medical exemption to go and deliver a speech at the National Press Club in Canberra. And certainly the sense of the state uh, from outside Victoria is one of, you know, we can all stay there and um, uh, the, the less people have to do with us, the better, whilst obviously giving us <laughs> their emotional support. And to be honest, I can understand um, all, all of that. Look, I, I think... I, th- I think that this is sort of exists at a couple of levels. I think, firstly, um, the judicial inquiry that Daniel Andrews called straight away um, is is looking at this without fear or favour, and I think will reveal what forensically and, and kind of granularly has happened, such that this has got out, and 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 whether or not there is something particular to Victoria and the way we were handling things in a public policy sense, which led to that. Um, and to be honest, I, I know that you know there's a bit of a pile on at the moment, and uh, I can understand that. But I think it's really the outcome of that inquiry which will really give us a proper sense of what's happened here. At a at a bigger level, I, you know, I wonder whether there is a simple truth that until this uh, virus is eradicated, then the threat of a flare up could happen anywhere. Um, and uh, you know, you look at the sort of language which is being used by the New South Wales Premier right now about their situation, and she's describing it as very tense and on a knife edge, and I think that's probably accurate. And, you know, I don't think New South Wales is out of the woods, and um, and, and, I, and I think it's as simple as as long as this is around, it's highly contagious and it can spread. So um, we'll, we'll find out answers in detail, but I, but I, I tend to think that the, the, the sort of bigger question is, um, it's it's just going to be a case of complete vigilance everywhere in the country until we have some therapeutic means of dealing with this, meaning you know, vaccine or, or some uh, something which you a pharmaceutical remedy uh, for people who have it. It's interesting to watch the way that sections of the media have both reported the the pandemic both from a health perspective and also from an economic perspective but also this natural inclination to looking for something to blame and um whereas i i've always sort of felt throughout this whole thing there's there's there has to be some level of um personal responsibility in this because of the way that the, uh, the way a pandemic works and uh, and how people can contract a virus, it really is on us as well, which is funny because a lot of the commentary coming from the right is really looking for someone to blame and they're clearly zeroing in on the Andrews government right now. Yet, you know, personal responsibility is one of the principal, fa- uh, principal values of conservatism, <laughs> but it's central throwing that out the window. Yeah, I... I, I... Personal responsibility, that's right, um, and, and obviously personal responsibility has a huge role to play here. I mean, we are relying on uh, individuals around the country to um, behave in a particular way, to follow the rules of, of lockdown, to wear a mask, to do all of those things in order to to get, in, get on top of it. Um, but I think ultimately, you know, we're humans, uh, and humans like um, answers to questions, even if there aren't simple answers out there. We tend to oversimplify, and, and it's easier, I think, to walk down a path where you can point the finger at somebody or something and, and ascribe blame in that sense. 
Now, there's another issue here, which is that there is a high degree of randomness, uh, fate, if you like, which which is accompanying all of this. Um, I mean, go. I mean, the thing that I find amazing about coronavirus is that um, scientists are able, when looking at the virus, to be able to date the the moment at which to the month, the moment at which the virus trans jumped into humanity, and it's November last year. So, as we sit here at the beginning of August, it's incredible, really, to think that what nine months ago, um, nine months, that everything we've seen in the whole world has played out in nine months, that, that this time last year, this virus didn't exist. I mean, it existed in, in animals, but a whole lot of viruses exist in animals right now, but in, in the sense of existing humanity. Now, um, how a virus jumps from one species to another um, is um, you know, a pretty complicated process. Uh, and and obviously, you know, there, there's, I mean, there are some things one can do about that, but there's also a whole lot of fate associated with that. Um, whether when you're talking about an Australian context now, a person who contracts it, who does sign away, where they're completely asymptomatic, where they have absolutely no idea that they've got it, where they have spread it, um, and, you know, may well never be tested and never have known they had it. I mean, there's a degree of luck in that as well compared to, um, you know, somebody who gets it, who shows symptoms straight away, who goes home, you know, uh, and, and, and doesn't give it to anybody. I mean, all, all, whether this flares up in one place or another has a lot to do with those things as well. And There's not a, a an easy kind of blame attributable answer to all of that. It, 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 there is just a degree of fate. Um, now, that's a really unsatisfactory answer in a public debate. No one wants to hear that. What, what people want to say is, no, no, it happened because of X and Y. It happened because of this person or that government. Um, and, you know, that's a that's the most human thing in the world to do. I, I think what's important, though, from a public policy level is that we do try and, um, you know, deal our best with the public commentary but really try to understand because at one level as unsatisfactory as the, the fate answer is if there is a significant component of that degree, then then what that then means is that it implies a public policy vigilance in areas where um, the disease may not have spread yet. In other words, what worries me about the attribution of blame uh, is that there is it, it inspires a false confidence in others where where this isn't uh, present yet. Um, whereas in fact it might just be this thing is highly contagious; it could flare up anywhere, um, and you need to be really careful. Um, being in opposition during a crisis of this uh, magnitude, how do you guys strike the balance of holding the federal government to account whilst at the same time not coming off being overtly negative or undermining sort of the, the, you know, the national um, ethos of sticking by each other to try and get through this global pandemic? It's a really good question, Stephen, and it's one that we have been um, thinking a lot about. And, and in many ways, I think... The experience of being in opposition during this period of time has really asked a whole lot of questions of us about what what being in opposition means. Um, you know, because in a democratic society, oppositions are a critical part of the functioning of government and governance. Um, you know, there is there is a, a critical role that we play um, in holding the government to account, which is not a negative role. It's not a um, uh, an undermining role of government. It's in fact um, a. I mean, it was when our system was conceived, the, the the role of opposition was conceived as a constructive role in the performance of government. And so, it. it, it but but obviously, you know, in in normal times, the political 
kind of contest can have a soap opera quality to it, and there is a, a um, uh, you, you know, there's a sort of uh, to and fro. People will wear black hats and white hats, and, and there's a, a debate which is not always the most edifying. I, I think this has asked of us to be the best opposition we can, which means that the number one thing we need to hold in our mind is the national interest and that whatever criticism we provide and whatever holding account of the government that we do needs to be done with the ultimate national interest in mind. Um, and that's the way we've tried to go about it. So, you know, we the way we frame it in terms of our minds is that what we offer the government is constructive support. You know, this is a crisis. We want to be uh, getting through this together. We want the government to succeed and, and uh, and that's true, you know, like, it, I mean, sure, we want to win the next election. We obviously want the government to succeed in managing this crisis, both in terms of um, minimising the negative health impacts and um, making and also minimising the negative economic impacts. I mean, obviously, that's what we want. Um, okay, so so from there, we, we will point out where we think the government's gone wrong, but but we're really being pretty careful to um, do this in a way where our tone is understood as being one where we do actually want, in relation to this crisis, the government to succeed because we do. Um, now, you know, we, no one carries these things off perfectly, but that at least is what we're trying to do. And, and, and as I say, I think that's actually really kind of made us think a lot about what it is to be in opposition. I thought it was bullshit. It was smart and clever, but bullshit that Morrison didn't invite you guys into the National Cabinet. Um, you know, without getting that critical information that state premiers and the PM gets access to, it's harder for you guys to make um, contributions to supporting the work of a government in that you know that national crisis and in addressing it in COVID. Was there any? Uh, I mean, did you guys extend the the offer, and was it knocked back, or was it just never on the table? Well, I don't think it was ever on the table, and and obviously had you know what we would have played whatever role we were invited to play, and and ultimately that is a question for the government as to to what it it does, and um, just as this has asked of us to think about what it, what opposition in modern society, you know, obviously the is asking what it means of a government in a two party democratic system, um, how they should operate as well, and. Ultimately, that's a matter for them. You know, I, I, I think there's a certain generosity of spirit which is required when people win elections to then engage in an act of sharing power, which is what we're talking about here. Um, it's, it's ultimately a matter for the government. And, and I'm, you know, I mean, they did win the election. I completely accept that. And, um, and we're not here um, pretending that we've got rights. Um, but we do obviously represent millions of Australians who voted for us and we represent... 68 out of 151 members of, of federal parliament. So we, we, in fact, we are the largest party in the parliament. Um, so we have a place, but I, I think ultimately that is a matter for the government as to, to what they do and they'll ultimately be judged in terms of how they've behaved in that regard. You mentioned aged care before uh, and tragically there's been over, I think over 130 deaths um, in aged care facilities in Victoria as a result of the pandemic. Um, many of these facilities are regulated by the Commonwealth and many of these facilities are now in private ownership or private, private hands. How are we seeing public policy play out with respect to things like privatisation, 
um, insecure work exposing a lot of workers out there with the shutdowns, casualization, leaving a lot of workers with no leave provisions during a shutdown. Is this pandemic presenting labor with the opportunity to start to rethink the way that we structure our economy um, and indeed the way that um, our policies can impact on society? So to give an aged care specific answer to that, that general question to start with, I mean, I, I think what is important to observe, particularly in terms of what's going on in Victoria at the moment, is that the Commonwealth Government obviously has a responsibility for governing large parts of Victoria, um, as it does every other state. Um, there are Commonwealth responsibilities within the state of Victoria, and one of them is the aged care system. Um, and right now, there it's not to be very understated. Um, I, it is the place where the lethality of this disease will be the greatest. Um, it, it is unquestionably the most terrifying aspect of how COVID is playing out in Victoria right now. Um, and the Commonwealth has responsibility. And, and I think some of what you talked about then, in I mean, ultimately, the, the funding of the aged care sector, which has been significantly cut during the period of the Abbott Turnbull Morrison government, is what underpins what's going on within the aged care sector right now. Um, the, the, the inevitable casualisation of the workforce, which has really sprung from that, um, is, is, is clearly, I think, a feature. Um, and I think there's a lot to, left to be desired in terms of the level of communication which is going on at the moment in relation to um, families who have loved ones within the aged care sector, but also to the facilities themselves. So, I mean, there there is responsibility right now in Victoria that the Commonwealth needs to accept and own and act upon, um, and I would like to see more of that. In terms of a general question, um, I, it really then asks. I think it. I think. I think a whole lot of kind of fragilities within our economy have been exposed by COVID. To me, the most significant really is the significant deindustrialization of Australia since 2013 has opened up real fragilities around our industrial capability and, and, and in some ways that bleeds into questions of sovereign capability in a way that we wouldn't have thought about. So if this time last year you'd said to me that the making of surgical masks was um, a matter of critical importance that we're able to perform that in Australia, I frankly would have laughed and, and said I'm sure we can get them in from overseas. Um, and yet... Earlier this year, we had members of the Australian Defence Force, members of the Australian Army in uniform in a mask-making factory in Shepparton, I think, helping to puff them out because we needed them. Well, okay, surgical masks are now, and the making of them is, is an industrial capability in that moment, which was of national significance. It really demands a rethink about the kinds of things that we need to be able to undertake within our economy. And... Um, the, the, the loss of manufacturing and industrial capability that we've seen in the last six years, I, I think, is a, is a real issue. I do think, therefore, that we need to be um, a, a country which makes things, to use the words of Kevin Rudd, but, but going forward, I think for our, a country of our size, um, the economy we would want to have and the level of prosperity within our society that we would aspire to, I think, being a country which is able to manufacture is fundamental and for a first world nation to manufacture, it implies that we need to be manufacturing at the highest value level. Um, you know, the, the model here is places like South Korea or Germany. Uh, and if we're going to get there, we need to 
completely change in my mind our cultural relationship to science, which um, right now I don't think is is that flash. And I, and I so there's a lot of work to do in doing that. And if we were able to get to that place, it would also then I think go to a number of the other questions that you raised that we've seen in the economy, which is the uh, the level of security of work, um, because what manufacturing does is drive good, long-term, permanent, secure jobs. Um, and, you know, with the loss of manufacturing, and it's not only that, but I think it's a good example, we've seen a loss of those sorts of jobs within the economy, and certainly we've seen that in Geelong. So all of this, I reckon, speaks to the sorts of decisions that are going to confront us as a nation coming out of COVID. Um, it, it will be the single uh, most significant moment of reimagining Australia since the end of the Second World War. And in that sense, from a public policy view, it's actually a pretty exciting time to be thinking about the future of Australia. And um, I think the way in which we seize or do not seize this moment will, I think, write much of the story about Australia going into the middle of the century. Um, but in my mind, it is absolutely uh, about getting us back into manufacturing, making sure that we are changing our cultural relationship to science in the process and through that, um, generate or building an economy which generates a whole lot more uh, secure and permanent jobs. I want to uh, briefly just pick up on that point there about uh, secure jobs. Um, you and I are both um, former uh, officials of the Transport Workers Union and come from the union movement. And I have a level of depression now that's creeping in and has done now for probably the last four or five years about the relationship between employer and employee and the balance. Mm. And I'm wondering that if you, if, 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 was la if Labor was to be in power and to invest in, in, in science and in manufacturing and do all the things that you're talking about, which are incredibly important, and I completely agree with you, and you facilitate this opportunity to create long-term secure jobs, but we have an industrial relations system that doesn't enable that. I, I just I, I feel a bit um, pessimistic about that. What, what's your as a former union official? How do you look at industrial relations today and think where, where from the moment we brought in enterprise bargaining to today, where where has it gone wrong, and where do we go from here? Because I'm worrying that we're getting closer and closer to the relationship that workers have with their bosses in the United States, unless you are you are in a unionised workplace. Yeah, I, look, well, the way I sort of analyse this is, um, if you go back to 1970, say, um, almost everyone in the economy at that point in time, uh, or everyone in the workforce, had a full-time permanent job, I mean, that, in, in the sense that that's really how we worked. Um, there, there was um, basically one form of employment there, and it was supplemented by um, a small amount of casual employment, um, which was genuinely casual in, in the sense that it, 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 you know, the, the idea of kind of permanent casuals, which is feels like an oxymoron, well, it is an oxymoron, but which almost is a, a unique feature of the Australian workplace today, a very big one, it didn't really exist in that way back in the 1970s. And our industrial relations system that we we, we both uh, well versed in, you know, going right back to, um, you know, the harvester judgment and everything that's flowed from there I'm is not, one I'm not, that... I'm not that old, Richard. I'm not that old. <laughs> no, but, I, but you're a student of history, so I know, <laughs> I know you've read it. Um, the, the You know, it, it does... Um, for most of that time, it, it, it's a it's a system that has built up around how to regulate full time permanent employment. 
Um, and I think as a system, it still does that well. Um, and obviously, there are a significant number of full-time permanent employees in the workplace. Um, but as the workplace has um, kind of uh, fragmented in terms of the mode of employment, and we have much more atypical employment, meaning casual, uh, part-time, um, time-constrained, uh, you know, time-limited employment, as in, you know, people doing and, and job-based employment, task-based employment, um, I think the, uh, the, the 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 traditional structures which have been there for a long period of time have struggled to deal with that. Um, and now um, we are in a world which is, I, I think, has has taken that to another level. When you think about something like Airtasker and, and the whole gig economy, I mean, that's, that's in an entirely different place as well. So when you think about the award system, which evolves into enterprise bargaining um, with an independent umpire, um, I mean, none of that and, and the whole sort of the difference between employee and independent contractor, all of those sort of questions that we all learned when we went through law school or, or we, we learn our task as an industrial officer of a union. I mean, how does that all work when we're talking about a gig employee? I mean, that, 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 that is completely different. And yet um, that, that is growing significantly. So I think I don't have clean answers to this, but what I do think is that the industrialization system needs to evolve in a way which gives people rights and some form of security in the context of um, work which uh, is, is is different to what the the fun what the, the the system itself was designed to regulate and somehow we've got to provide um, some security in that so that people can plan a life I mean if for example I, mean, I, I grew up thinking that you know the, fun, the big difference between working full-time and working casual, whilst you got a casual loading and there were some benefits about working casual, is that if you want to get a bank loan so that you can get a mortgage and lay down roots and buy a house, you need a permanent job to demonstrate that to a bank. Um, so if, if, if that kind of permanency is the passport to a whole lot of uh, other decisions that we take, that we want to take within our lives, and that's only now available to a component of the workforce, um, because there's a whole lot of other forms of employment which just don't deliver it. Well, then I think we need to be thinking about how our industrial relations system manages that and and still comes up with an answer which gives people those rights. So that if, if you are, if, I don't know, I mean, if you're in a, in a world now where you, you, you expect your entire career to be based on the gig economy, that um, you can do that in a way which still enables you to buy a house and live the life that others can live. And, and I think that's the real challenge and that, that I know the union movement's trying to work through. Um, and I think actually it turns out the TW is kind of at the forefront of this because um, through owner drivers, it, it was probably dealing with this phenomenon a bit earlier than a lot of other unions. Um, and certainly the gig economy is making its way into the transport space. So you know, someone like Tony Sheldon is really at the forefront of thought about this. Um, I, I, I think we've got to work out some answers uh, about it and, and do that fast. But you can be sure that you know, these, how people have rights in this space um, and how work here can benefit and work for the employee or the, the person doing the work is a problem that we are thinking about, where our political opponents, I'm sure, are definitely not. Mm. You addressed the National Press Club uh, this week. Uh, yeah, was this, it was this week, wasn't it? It was this week. Yeah, yeah. this week it feels like a month. Um, Indeed, <laughs> but that you know that's a part of this, isn't it? There, there's been uh, uh, it, there has been the most extraordinary kind of impact on time. So there have been periods where time has been kind of 
compressed or elongated, but just as you said then, like uh, where there, there appears to be the volume of news is so great um, that a given week seems to go for about six months. But then there was a period in there, I don't know, I've lost track of time, but maybe two months ago when things weren't sort of so happening so much and you're hard-pressed to work out what day of the week it was. Like it, days just morphed into each other and time suddenly was speeding by, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I can't remember a year in my life where my sense of time has been so distorted and disrupted. I know. So I think we're in August. I think we're in August. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's 2020. It's definitely 2020. We'll never forget that. Um, yeah. Yeah, I know the first lockdown kind of felt like a holiday camp. It felt like... Um, you're a young kid and something happened to your family home, like it got flooded and you had to go stay with your yeah. aunties for four or five weeks and you're sleeping on the floor and you're yeah. going to hang out with your cousins and it was like school holidays had been extended for months. It kind of felt like that, whereas this feels this feels real at the moment. Isn't it? And I think that's a really interesting observation as well. And like I noticed that with my kids. So I've got three kids who are in the house right now who are doing homeschooling uh, and, and so they've gone through this the first time and then went back to school and now they're they're back at home really for the first time this week. Um, and it's just as you said, I think the first time there was a certain novelty about it and uh, it was kind of fun being at home and, you know, the, the, like play with the dogs. And it was, you know, there was, there was, um, it, 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 there was definitely a novelty about it. Like you could go out and shoot hoops in the backyard between classes and that was all fine. Mm. Now it, there is a really different feel, you know, that the kids were actually not looking forward to lockdown this time that they were, um, they're missing their their friends. Um, they, you know, it, it, there is a disruption to it. It, it is disconcerting, and and you can really feel that in the demeanour. And it's a, it, it, it's very very different. And um, and I think the other thing, it also speaks to an interesting phenomenon as well. I think there's a there is a bifurcation going on within the community at the moment. Like how how you're experiencing how one is experiencing this is is really different. Like if you've got a a permanent job where you can work at home. Um, and there's that flexibility. Uh, well, okay, that you, this isn't that hard. You, you, you're, you're managing it, and in fact, you're spending more time with your family. There's some upside. If you have lost your job, or you're, or you're a small business owner, and your business has gone up in smoke, well, obviously, this is the just a, a catastrophe, um, and and you are beside yourself. Um, and equally, I, you know, I, I think for I think this aged care dimension. If you've got um, family or loved ones in aged care, well, then what? what is – that whole thing just takes on a completely terrifying dimension. And so, you know, there are very, very different experiences going on within the community in terms of how this is being felt. Although, again, I, I'd kind of – I'd probably say I think this time around, I reckon there is a more more of a sense that we're all in it together, perhaps, than the first time around. I, I think everyone is gets that this is serious and real. Yeah, the um, people seem less inclined to do the Friday night Zoom drinks with their mates this time around. When actual fact, I think yeah. this is the time when you need to do it because this is the time you need to break down that physical isolation and actually reach out to people and say, yeah. hey, how you going? Yeah, no, I think that's right. And the other thing that I think is really interesting is I, 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 I was, um, you know, I got that a whole lot of the professional sport was um, suspended early on um, and I'm obviously a sports nut in terms of being a sports fan. Um, but it, it did strike me at the time, you know, we're, we're actually going to need something like that. And sport and entertainment have, have played actually really important roles in getting people through crises, through wars and um, and the like. I mean, part of why Bradman and Farlap feel 
the national consciousness is is not just their exploits, but the time at which they did their exploits, which was, you know, during the depression, and they they provide a lot of joy during the, the, the most uh, difficult time. Um, so the one, you know, I am glad that they've kind of worked out how to do the AFL and how they've worked out to how to do the netball and the NRL. And um, you know, I'm a golf fan. We've got golf back on our screens. This is because at least there is something which kind of gets us through this mm. this moment. And I and I wrote a piece about this in the Herald Sun actually, but but I wonder whether there's there's been this sense of if you win the premiership this year, does it count? Um, my view is it counts more. I reckon of all the years to win the premiership. Um, the one that will be most remembered, um, the, the the players that will be we will most celebrate are the people who performed this year. Of all, even though there are no crowds there, even though there are shortened games, because this is when we need their magic and their joy the most. Inter- that's interesting because I've been I've got baseball season has started up again. I'm a massive Red Sox fan. Uh, good friends of mine, uh, Yankees fans. Obviously, huge rivalry there. They're a decent side this year. And, you know, they'd be in the top three or four to probably win the World Series. I don't think the Red Sox are going to even going to make it to the postseason. And I've been winding them up saying, do you really want to win this one? Is this the one to win? Like, it's a big asterisk. It's only 60 seasons. It didn't really count. But you think of the opposite. I, yeah, I... I've... I think it's the opposite. I completely think it's the opposite. It, it's This is the period that will produce um, our Don Bradmans and our fives. Um, it, 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 it's when we need it. It's really, really when we need it. Uh, I was speaking to a colleague, uh, Peter Khalil, who, you know, are you a Collingwood fan? No, I didn't follow footy. You don't even, I, okay, well, I don't, but that, that's a podcast all on its own right there. So <laughs> that's happened. Um, but um, uh, anyway, Peter has, has was just, you know, we're talking about a lot of difficult things. Do we get to Parliament? How do we participate? How do we do our jobs? Are we going to be essential? All this sort of stuff. Um, and it's grim, you know. I mean, it's not that like it, people are doing it worse, obviously. Yeah, yeah, but you know, we're, it, it's just, it's not a big conversation. Um, but we're working it through. Um, and then uh, we got onto the topic of footy, and suddenly uh, uh, Peter is waxing lyrical about Dacos, and the whole tone of the conversation lifts, you know. And we're able to actually finish it um, both with a smile on our face, and um, we've never needed it more. Like we've never needed it more. Um, and, um, you know, what is in most years kind of entertainment, I actually think this year is an essential service which makes this premiership even more important. That's how I see it. Okay. Um, I'm going to have to bring it back to uh, politics again because yes, literally – Yeah, sorry, we got off the track. No, that's okay. We literally <laughs> – I, I was looking at the time going, I could easily fill another 45 minutes of sports chat here with Richard, but yeah. um, maybe next time. Um, yeah. Yes, so you addressed the National Press Club this week, and we've established that it was this week. Um, and it was this week. It was this week. Tuesday, indeed. Um, what was the thrust of your argument? Obviously, you're there in your capacity, both as um, deputy leader, but also a shadow spokesperson for defence. Um, talk, talk us through what you were there for. Yeah, look, it, it, and it, it fits into the question you asked earlier about the role of being an opposition because it was it was a speech not done lightly. It, it, really, it was focused on the failings of our submarine, our future submarine program, which is, a, I think, a real problem for the country. Um, it, it's been an issue that um, has probably been seen as a kind of a niche defence issue, and maybe it's still seen in that. But, but I, you know, I can assure you, this is actually an issue which really should be on the mainstream stage for two reasons. One is that it is the most expensive item that Australia has ever bought in any context since Federation. 
Um, so uh, defence, civil, you name it. Um, so it is a phenomenal amount of money. Uh, but the second thing is that it is the most important platform in terms of um, shaping our strategic circumstances. And really what that means is that if we want to build sovereignty, build choices, build, empower ourselves as a nation so that we can move with some uh, greater freedom, I guess, within the world, then nothing is more important to that really in terms of a physical platform and having this particular capability. And so that, and yeah, and actually when you drill down, um, a whole lot of people's prosperities um, flow out of our sovereign capability. And I don't mean that just in terms of a military capability, although I do mean that, but I mean it's our, our ability to engage with the world more on our terms. A lot of prosperity um, flows from that or doesn't if you can't. Defence is an area where we seek bipartisanship. You know, it's not, it's not been an area of traditional contest. Um, we, we, we come to this in with that in mind, you know, like it, it's, it's um, it, it tends not to be a place where elections are won or lost and it tends not to be a place where there's really an ideological difference between the two major parties. Um, and so it makes sense that um, we should offer uh, essential bipartisanship to uh, what's going on here. But having said that, if bipartisanship is actually uh, really that's a code word for saying we're not going to have debate, well, that's a negative thing. Mm. I mean, if, if that means there's no scrutiny, there's no holding to account, um, that ultimately is a negative thing. Part, our, our, our system of government is based upon being able to hold the government to account so that mistakes are not made. Now, big mistakes are being made when it comes to the future submarines, really big mistakes. And so when you, you know, I mean, the fundamental thesis is if you look at the, the, the cost of the program, which has jumped by 80% in the last four years, and we're only four years into a 30-year program, that's an enormous concern. It's really gone from $50 billion to $90 billion. If you look at the, the timing of the project, it was, you know, when this government came to power, it was intended to be having the first of future submarines delivered in the mid-2020s. It's now going to be... 2035. So this program has slipped by 10 years in the last seven. And when you look at Australian industry content, the idea was that these submarines would be built in Australia in Adelaide. Um, you know, to begin with, people were talking about a 90% Australian build. Um, now there is no specific commitment to a percentage of Australian industry content, and the government is sending the fabrication of hull parts to France. Um, now, if that's happening, it really begs the question as to what actually is going to be done mm. in Australia. So in relation to the three key indicators, time, money, and Australian industry content, it's all going in the wrong direction. And what that ultimately creates is just the most wicked problem for the nation, which is um, how do we maintain or rather evolve our long-range submarine capability from the Collins class, which is what we've got now, uh, which, which were intended to end their life in this decade, um, to the, the future submarines, which are now not going to come into Will begin to come into service until the middle of the next decade. Now that's a there's a big problem there, mm. and it's, it's really not obvious about how you get out of it. But it's time that this problem be brought to light. And so, after you know a lot of thought and hand wringing, really, um, and having given the government not months but years to try and get on top of this, we really felt that it was time to make the speech where we highlight where this is going wrong and and that we need to see this fixed. And and that's what. Um, Tuesday was about the commentariat after the speech were like going oh you know very uh, interesting move by Labor to be moving on to talking about areas uh, particularly in defence and security that are a strong suit for the traditionally for the coalition and I was going I was thinking to myself what 
since when has this been a uh, a a partisan area for strength for one particular group over another? Um, and I think about you know Curtin and how Labor led Australia yeah. through the Second World War, the um, the the ANZUS Treaty and the relationship with the United States, all led by uh, Labor governments. Um, all through the Hawke-Keating uh, governments, when they basically strategically moved all of our defences from the north, from the south to the north, which makes perfect sense, and that was originally done under the Tories. Why all of a sudden are we now assuming that it's the Tories that know how to manage the defence and our security? So I think there are two great conceits of um, the conservative movement in this country that liberal national governments will always be better on the economy and they're better at national security. Um, and they are conceits, and, and those conceits are obviously wrong. And you, you, you've highlighted it. I mean, as you say, uh, Fisher gave us the Fisher Labor government gives us the Navy. It's the Curtin Labor government, which, um, against the complacency of previous Conservative governments, uh, pulls us out of that and, and creates preparedness for our nation for the Second World War. Um, it's Chifley who gives us, uh, you know, the Chifley government who gives us ASIO. But even more recently, the, I mean, if you look at the um, strategic paradigm, which underpins the most recent defence white paper, which is the 2016 white paper. The origins of that you'll find in the 1986 Dib report, which was commissioned by Kim Beasley as a defence minister in the Hawke Labor government, and it was first enunciated in in the 1987 defence white paper, which to this day is really the the, the bedrock of, of kind of modern defence thinking. So all of this occurs under Labor governments, and from an economic point of view, I think it's fair to say that. Um, modern Australia, if anything, is a, in terms of our economy, is a, has been built by or, or, or emanates from um, the Hawke and Keating Labor government. Um, so it's a reforming Labor government more than any other government, which deserves credit for the near 30 years of uninterrupted economic growth that we've seen in Australia. So, um, so this, these conceits are wrong, but I think what also happens there is that, that they they create a certain laziness. I mean, it's a it's a brand behind which um, the coalition. Um, have been politically lazy, and and I actually think the Morrison government, in many respects, has been inept. Um, and so, if you do measures of waste under this government, it far exceeds anything that we've seen um, in relation to Labor governments in recent times. If you look at measures of their capacity to actually deliver for our nation's national security, talk a big game, but when it comes to delivery, um, the the record is appalling. Um, and I think that it it it, it is in, it's really important that we point out that you know this sort of uh, the, these conceits and this attempt to build brand around these issues is all about spin and messaging. It is not about substance. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely not about substance. Um, and and in fact, you know, I think this government and modern liberals see their brand advantage as an opportunity to not work as hard, really, um, in, in terms of these areas of policy. And uh, and I absolutely think that's where we're at right now. Turning to China, you said in you know, one of your remarks were in terms of the Morrison government's uh, diplomacy when it comes to China, you said diplomacy at a political level has been hopeless. Yeah, well, it has been hopeless. I mean, it's been... Um, so what I really specifically mean there is that um, our, our our professional diplomats do an incredible job. You know, that those who and I've had the experience of working closely with DFAT um, when we were last in government. I mean, absolutely first rate. Uh, and I think we do that kind of diplomacy as well as any country in the world. We might do it better than them. 
a lot. Um, and that would certainly apply to our embassy in Beijing. But at a political level, um, this government cannot point to a single relationship that it has built between a member of the government um, and anyone senior within the Chinese government at all. I mean, not one. Like they've been in power for seven years and we're talking about our largest trading partner uh, and whatever you think of them, um, it's clearly a, a relationship which matters and there is not one single relationship at a political level that this government has managed to build in seven years which can provide just the smallest amount of ballast um, in moments of complexity and difficulty which are going to arise a lot in what is a very complicated relationship. So I think it has been totally hopeless um, and hopeless by reference to uh, that measure, if you like, um, with the Gillard-Rudd government where there were relationships during the Howard years where Alexander Downer absolutely um, had key relationships with senior people within the Chinese government. Um, I mean, relative to Australian governments of the past, um, this mob have been in it. Um, and I think we're, we're paying the price for it now. And, and it's, you know, and often... Um, what we get out of the government is this very kind of simplistic kind of, are you tough or are you not? Like it's, that that's the spectrum here. Well, I, actually it's, um, I, I don't think that's the spectrum. You know, I think the spectrum is, are you sophisticated or are you not? Mm. Um, and there are moments where, you know, like, you know, we do need to be strong and resolute. You know, we need to speak with a clear voice on something like the South China Sea, where in fact, I think this government has not spoken with a clear voice. Um, we need to be very strong in delivering a future submarine for this country because if actually if you want to build power in the context of um, all the relationships we have in the world, it's fundamental. Um, and yet, you know, this government uh, has failed in the delivery of that. Um, but then at other times you'll see, you know, those on you know, sort of government MPs more the fringe dwellers of the government um, engaging in rhetoric, which um, is just kind of um, silly, uh, that does enormous damage to the relationship. And, and in fact, you don't hear from the foreign minister or the prime minister at all. So I, I think fundamentally, it's a relationship which is being really uh, badly managed. And there's a lot at stake here. I mean, in an economic sense, there are tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of jobs at stake. And, and in, a, in a kind of security sense, um, you know, our, our sovereignty is at stake here. And, and uh, I, uh, I, I, you know, I'm gobsmacked really by how badly the government's gone on it. What's going on with China? I get a, I'm so torn on the, the, what kind of relationship that we want to establish with China, because obviously we're seeing um, uh, memorandums of understanding signed by the Victorian State uh, Premier Daniel Andrews with China, which was announced during the last campaign. Um, you know, you were talking about these sort of fringe dwellers within the 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 the, the backbenches of the of the Liberal government criticising that, and also coming from uh, the opposition here in Victoria. Um, you're talking about having a sophisticated conversation and relationship with China, which makes perfect sense to me. But at the same time, we're also starting to sort of get some um, blowback from even our own ranks about, oh, you know, should we be doing this? You know, trying to track record and human rights is pretty poor. Yada yada yada. Can we get consensus on where Australia stands on China? Is, I mean, is that, is that what we're looking for here? And if we do, how do we do that? Yeah, it is. But it, yeah, look, it, well, it, it's 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 complicated and it requires discussion, and you need to think it through. And it's um, it's not simple. You know, the relationship with conceptually the relationship with the United States is much more simple. I mean, obviously, we mm -hmm. we, we share values, and um, they're the cornerstone of our 
foreign policy and our national security and and the alliance we want to make as solid and deep as we possibly can. So that the aims are in in the context of our relationship with the US are comparatively simple, albeit the relationship is obviously very deep and a lot of effort goes into it as it should. China is just much more complicated. Um, you know, it, it it raises a whole lot of questions, but it's not beyond our wit mm. by any means to to work it out. There needs to be a national conversation about this and 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 an adult conversation about it. So you know, like it, it, it I mean, China is um, uh, has a different system of government to our own. Um, it 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 is not, um, and and more than that, um, it is seeking to do what great powers do, and that is to shape the world around it. Um, and that does raise a number of challenges for us and our national interest. And we need to, however we work forward, walk forward, be in a position to um, strongly and courageously articulate our national interest um, when it differs from well, all the time, but particularly when it differs from Chinese action. So we've got to have a relationship which enables that. Um, it, it, China is not um, the only government in the world which is not democratic, and we trade with countries around the world that are not democratic. But really, with in, in a global rules-based order, in the aftermath of the Second World War, um, we talk about the international community now, and we talk about this in terms of human rights, where we we do judge. Um, where, we, where we absolutely go out and judge other countries and it is our business, as it is every country's business, to speak out about the way in which people are being treated um, behind other countries' borders. And, you know, the horrors of the Second World War meant that, um, you know, borders cannot be an excuse for other countries not to make comments. So we do that. But part of the deal in doing that is we also submit ourselves to judgment um, and and so that if you like the judgment is made with humility now we we want to be that kind of country in the world which means we've got an obligation to exercise our voice um, about human rights globally and that includes in China and so we need to be able to talk about the Uyghurs because there are genuine human rights issues there mm. and we need to be able to talk about what's going on in Hong Kong um, and so that's a critical part of um, the relationship that we build with China as well. We need to have a relationship where we can say all of these things, but make it clear that we're not we're not like this is part of how uh, a global rules based order works, and, and and we are not shying away from judgment of us, um, and that's a critical reciprocal part um, of the deal here. But having said all of that, and having also made clear that you know our national security, our foreign policy is is based on alliance with the United States, which isn't going to change. Um, I think it is also possible within that to say, but we value the relationship with China. You know, it's we, we don't equate China with the Soviet Union, and I don't, and we certainly don't equate China with, I don't know, Nazi Germany, which which others have sought to do. I mean, that that's not what we're talking about here. Um, and and I am comfortable with the fact that we trade with China. Um, obviously, it's our largest trading partner, and and therefore. You know, there is, it's got to be okay to say that we value the relationship with China because what are we saying if we don't? I mean, why are we trading if, if we don't? So, um, and and there is that side of the equation we have to give expression to as well. Now, you know, we, we, we have, I mean, the highest 
engagement with China right now um, is an annual dialogue which occurs between the chief of our defence force um, and the chief of theirs. Um, it, I mean, the highest dialogue should be occurring at a, at a leader level, but, but right now the highest dialogue is probably occurring there. I know that the Australian military values that dialogue. It values the dialogue. That's what they say. Let's learn from that. I mean, if our own military is 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 making the point that a, a, a dialogue with this country is of value to it, um, then surely that ought to be the guide in terms of how we, we do the relationship more generally. So it's not to say that we don't speak out and it's not to say that we um, appease China in the context of our own national interest. We can't and we must not. In fact, it's the opposite. We need to be very strong in the way we do that. But it is to say that there, there, there is... Um, space to build a relationship in the midst of all of that. Um, and that is how uh, countries have related to each other for millennia um, across different systems of government. Um, and we've got to have the capacity to do it. Now, that's a kind of a summary. Um, it's complicated. It's not simple. It's not like our relationship with New Zealand or our relationship with the United States, but it's not beyond our wit to work it out either. Um, and what there should be is a kind of a sensible adult conversation across our polity, which, which arrives, if you like, at a set of guiding principles, which are somewhere within what I've just described, um, which can then be the basis on which all of us behave in terms of the way in which we deal with China. And I think if we did that, we would be um, in a much better position to move the country and the relationship forward and one where we have a much more sensible conversation here. But as it is, I, you know, I, I think... We just don't hear from the foreign minister at all. I mean, she is basically silent, um, which I, I just find completely astounding. Uh, and we don't really hear from the prime minister at all either. I mean, you don't get any of that kind of analysis from the other side. Um, and without it, I'm, I'm not sure what hope we have in terms of trying to uh, rectify this relationship. And um, along the way, we're, we are going to see tens, if not hundreds of thousands of jobs lost in this country as a result. And it sounds like the only way we're going to have that sensible conversation is with uh, the election of a Labor government, hopefully next year at some stage. Well, I, I hope that's right. And I, and I do, you know, I mean, we, we, we want to be adults in the room when it comes to this. And it's not, it's certainly not defeat us. Like you can do it. You can, you can manage this. Hard, harder relationships are being managed. I mean, the thing I find amazing is that at the heart of the Cold War, there was a dialogue that existed between the United States and the Soviet Union. I mean, that actually happened. Yeah. Yeah. So, so why is this beyond us? Yeah. Like, what, what, why is it beyond us now? Um, when, when, when um, we've, we've got so much tied up with China, um, it's, it's, I, I, I find it astounding. But you get into this sort of puerile analysis of who's tough, who's weak, who's, who can be stronger in their comments versus who's not. And it's, it's just not, it's the wrong spectrum. Mm. It's who's sophisticated, who's thoughtful, who's adult, and who's not. Like, if you want to have a spectrum, that's the spectrum. And actually, we all have to be in one place there, and we need to get the sophisticated conversation going so that we can have a proper basis upon which we relate to a country which is obviously critically important to us. Here, here. Richard Miles, thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate it. I uh, look it's forward- great. I've enjoyed it. I've been meaning to get you on the podcast for a while, actually, so I'm glad uh, we got, took that opportunity. But we really could have went into a black hole there for a while in the middle of that epi- in the middle of that episode, where we really could have talked about a lot of sport, and we've done that before. So maybe we'll have to get you back on again to revisit. Well, some that's that, that is that is part B, where where we will. Um, so questions questions for part B. Um, 
Who's the most magical sports people you've watched as a sports fan? Oh, this is good. Top three. Oh. Yeah. Um, top three specific moments, like where the something happens on the screen and you go, wow. Yes. Top three. Yes. Um, top three greatest kind of, um, you know, uh, like a, achievements, not of us, but of the teams we follow that, that, that we've witnessed. Okay. I, I think you should three add moments of. I think, you, I think you should add in also, and maybe can include one moment that you think that you've achieved as well. Just to, you know, give yourself a bit of a, you can maybe factor that in as well. It could be under 10s footy, you know, or it could be in the golf on the course last week, but just maybe one. Okay. Well, so, so, so the, this, this is a teaser for, for part, part B. <laughs> Greatest achievement. Of, of as a fan, you know, it was when Geelong won, broke its drought and won the 2007 Premiership. Greatest single moment is when the putt dropped uh, and Adam Scott won the Masters to become the first Australian to win the Masters. Um, uh, well, one of the three greatest magicians that I have witnessed, Shane Warne, um, and my own personal achievement was... Um, defeating Tim Henman in tennis, who went on to become the world's number four. And there's a story which oh, there is, there is a story is behind there. that. So it's not all yeah. that it seems, but we'll <laughs> leave that for the next episode. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, look after yourself. Thanks very much for your time on the uh, come on the show today. Um, take care of you and your family and everyone down in uh, the Sleepy Hollow. And we'll look forward to having you back on pretty soon. You too, Stephen. Great to talk. 